This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, you beautiful human beings. I'm Ray Harkins, and you're listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm recording in a hotel room in Binghamton, New York. How about that, right? The life and travels of Ray Harkins. It's just, it gets super, super glamorous, doesn't it? But anyways, I wanted to tell you that a great guest is on the show this week. Just like every week, because basically um, this show is the best podcast around and uh, you come here for the best content on the internet. That's just me being sarcastic. But the guest this week is really awesome because I had an in-person chat with a good friend of mine, Ian Miller. He plays in a band called, called Kowloon Walled City, also plays in a band called Less Art with members of Thrice and Curl Up and Die. And he has played in a ton of bands in the Bay Area for a long, long time. He's played in Redemption 87. He's played in Skank and Pickle. Basically, the dude has been around in the best way possible, and he's contributed to his music scene, and he's toured, and he's put out a lot of good music. And that's exactly the sort of people that I like to have on the show. Um, so, you know, he may not be a household name relative to some of the other guests that are on the show, but frankly, that doesn't matter to me and it shouldn't matter to you because Ian has some amazing stories. So more on him in a few minutes, but uh, I got to get some business cleanup out of the way. Uh, I've been pushing for you recently to help me out in regards to Overcast. So Overcast is a premium player for podcasts and they have a music category and I want my show to be included in that. So basically if you use Overcast, just click the star on every episode that comes out. Basically it's a little recommendation tool that will uh, hopefully eventually get me in the little music category that they have there. Uh, just because, uh, yeah, I don't know. I really want that. <laughs> so uh, please do that. And it, it's a free player. So if you are like, yo, the Apple podcast app stinks, I want to try something else. Overcast is great. I've used it for a long time and it's awesome. And if you can pay for premium features and whatever. I'm not trying to shill for the product, but I'm trying to tell you that there is a superior <laughs> listening platform for you to use. So anyways, um, also take a listener survey. So go to podsurvey.com backslash or slash, I think backslash, whatever, that's slash, you know it. It's on the bottom right hand of the keyboard, <laughs> slash words, and you will be able to find a 20-question uh, survey. It'll take you less than five minutes, and uh, that would just help me out a lot because basically, as you can tell, there's advertisers in the show, and I'm able to match up advertisers to the sort of people that listen to the show, and the more of you that take it, the better it is for the show because it's uh, then it's very accurate and you're not just like, Oh wow! I'm hearing uh, you know an advertisement on Clorox bleach, and it's like, what? What does that have to do with me? And it's like, well, nothing, you know. But um, anyways, not saying like I would turn away money from Clorox bleach, but <laughs> I digress. But yes, please do that. Podsurvey.com backslash words. <clears throat> and uh, any other business pleasantries? Well, I, I, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I hope you were doing well. I actually wanted to give a <clears throat> very, very, very special shout out to a person named Stuart Brown. He is from Scotland, and he is a large fan of the show, and I've been uh, communicating with him for a while over email. And he, uh, the reason I'm, I'm highlighting him in particular is, um, yeah, he's just, I, I love how he has expressed his love for the show in regards to it makes him feel connected to the music scene. He's gone to a bunch of shows from bands that have appeared on the show, and it's just, I don't know, but big, 
big, big shout out to Stuart Brown. Thank you very much for, for caring about this thing, telling people about it, and ultimately being influenced by it. So thank you very, very much. That just like warms my soul in so many different ways. But um, <clears throat> yeah, that's that from, from that perspective. But Ian Miller, like I said, we, uh, I was up in San Francisco and Oakland for a day uh, a couple weeks ago, and I stayed with Ian, and I was like, we need a podcast. And he was like, that sounds spectacular. And we had such a good time. Like, I could, probably could have talked to him for two and a half hours, um, if not longer, because we, <laughs> it's like we had dinner, we came back to his place, and then we, uh, you know, set up shop and <laughs> talked for another, you know, hour and a half or whatever. But um, he has a great story. Uh, he's been through a lot personally and he has a, uh, interesting background in regards to his family. Like his, uh, his, his father is the uh, creator and inventor of Friday the 13th, which is uh, not something that, you know, he really regularly talks about cause you know, he doesn't want to be one of those douchey people within like three minutes. He's like, well, did you know he's not like that at all? So I, I pulled it out of him, but I'm mentioning it here just because, um, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting fact and kind of, you know, living in and around showbiz from, uh, from that perspective. But, um, Ian has done so much on his own to, um, yeah, just contribute to the music scene. I just love people like him because they're they're lifers in the best way possible, and uh, he continually pushes the boundaries with his uh, with his bands musically. Like I said, Less Art is amazing, and Kowloon Walled City. Um, just if you like anything heavy, you will like his bands. So that is what we got going on. And here's Ian, and I will talk to you after the show is over. became aware of you you know once you started to become very close to mutual friends of ours and i was just like oh it's like i've i had heard your name in the past and it was one of those things where it was just like we you know we had not met like our paths had not crossed even though we've probably been in the same rooms for you know many many years we just hadn't met um but you are like in my opinion like the epitome of involvement where it's like you are you know you're engaged you're playing in a million bands and you, I, I think, you know, because of that, you're, and I presume you notice this where it's like your, your world is probably pretty small in the sense of like, you're only probably one person removed from almost everybody in the independent music scene in a way, because you've been involved in so like, you've been involved for so many years, but then yeah. also played in so many different sounding bands. Like, you know, you haven't just stuck to the lane of like oh i only play in like old school hardcore bands or whatever you know although i did time yeah i did my stints in that right but yeah i think that you, you nailed it i mean it's not by any virtue of like me being cool or being in the right place at the right time it's really just if you stick with it long enough you uh cross paths or end up in the orbit of all these different people and that's <laughs> that's, that's the name of the game a really long time more than half my life so right and do you, does that like, do you often ref, kind of get not, not nostalgic, but like, do you reflect on that where it's just like, wow, it's kind of weird that like, you know, it probably in the same way where, you know, maybe your parents or other, you know, like your people that are of your same age, like you work with or whatever, like you could be dropped off in any city across America or the world and probably have one or two people that you could call. Whereas a lot of people, that's not normal. That is pretty cool. I mean, I don't. 
I don't know. I don't tend to think about it in those terms or I don't tend to think that that's a weird thing because that's just what you've experienced, what I've experienced. And so, yeah, I mean, as Kowloon plays shows or as Tracy and I are traveling, I do have those opportunities where I can look up this person or that person and, you know, we can uh, talk about the good old days or whatever. And it's, it's a gift, man. It's the, it's the thing that I value most about uh, this whole music trip, the whole hardcore thing. It's just, it's all about the relationships really. Mm -hmm. And it, it is weird when you do recognize that. Cause like, you know, when you're, when you're younger and like, you know, putting their bands, you know, putting their shows, all that other stuff, you don't realize like those relationships that you're actually creating. Yeah. That, you know, they end up, you know, paving the way for years to come where you're just like, wow, like I've known that person for 20 years and they set up a basement show for me or whatever, you know? Yep. <laughs> I mean, especially the people that stay involved, you know? Yeah. Cause you know, I mean, you can't predict, um, what's going to happen 20 years on down the line. My, who knew that, um, me befriending Riley Breckenridge before I ever knew he was in Thrice. Uh-huh. Thrice was just starting out. Who knew that when I befriended him on a message board in 1999 that would be playing in a band together in 2017 <laughs> and doing a podcast and stuff like that. So it's just it's just crazy. <laughs> that, that's what I didn't know how actually how you guys met. So it was a we message. We met board. on the Buddyhead message boards back in yeah the like shit talking message the right. shit talking message boards 99 2000 like around then. Um. Riley was just a, a sweet young kid who everybody liked on this message board and he never told anybody that he played in thrice. And again, thrice was just starting out back then. Right. And, um, you know, and then it came out that he was in thrice and that I was, was redemption. Yeah. I was redemption was over by then. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, eventually we both found out about each other and we both found out that we love baseball and here we are. Similar sensibilities, right? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Doing, doing these bands and, hanging out with each other's families almost 20 years later. Right. It's crazy. And I probably, I wouldn't have met you. Yeah. If it hadn't been for that, cause I wouldn't have met Mike and I wouldn't be in this band. And right. 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 All the, all the trajectories come, <clears throat> come full circle. Yeah. The, uh, you, but you were, you were born and raised on the East coast, right? I was in Connecticut. Yeah. A thousand years ago. Right. <laughs> we're specifically in Connecticut though. I grew up and did most of my, uh, formative years in Stratford, which is sort of, um, Southern Connecticut between Bridgeport and New Haven mm-hmm. and eventually moved to Milford before I moved out for, for a brief period before I went away to college and then moved out to California. Okay. And what was your, your family structure like? Very traditional, uh, intact family, mom, dad, uh, I'm, uh, the oldest of two boys. Okay. My brother is four years younger than me, played drums in Wide Awake briefly. Wow, look at that. <laughs> Not the original drummer. He wasn't on the record, but there is footage of they played Wide Awake played a benefit at the second anthrax. Okay. And I wouldn't be able to tell you what year that was or whatever. But uh yeah, Josh played played drums in Wide Awake briefly. That's funny. So were were you were you the sort of uh, pacemaker in regards to the person that was like finding out about independent music in the family first, or did your brother kind of have you know some influence on that? I think so. We're four years apart, and I think that's a a substantial enough difference in age that I wasn't a huge influence on him that way. Mm-hmm. He like I'd gone away to college when I was sixteen. I went away to college when I was really young. Um, Were you just that smart? 
I mean, I'd skipped a grade. I wasn't look like, at that. You know, look at that. It wasn't like a Doogie Howser situation right. or whatever. But <laughs> you were you weren't finding the cure for cancer at no, sixteen years old. No, oh, Jesus, no. <laughs> um, so I was gone from his daily life when he was twelve. Right. But he got hardcore into skateboarding. Worked at a local skate shop. Started playing drums, and I feel like you know his. He definitely forged his own path in terms of that stuff. Got it. I'm not even sure how he hooked up with the wide awake guys because they were from a, a good piece away from where we lived. They were like 45 minutes to an hour uh-huh. um, away from from where we were living. But somehow he ended up in that band, and uh, I was I was off doing other stuff when he was doing that. But the Anthrax did factor in huge into our our both of our upbringing. Right. And how how did you trip across that? Good question. I was like a total heavy metal guy from about age 12. Uh, trying to think what the, uh, the, I mean, the obvious entree into hardcore for me was the crossover stuff that was happening in the, let's call it late 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, we already, we mentioned this briefly when we were having dinner. Yeah. Corrosion and conformity, animosity was huge. DRI dealing with it, attitude adjustment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Bay Area thrash metal stuff, like all of that, um, Misfits, Seven Seconds, Minor Threat, Dag Nasty, all of that stuff was sort of, I, it wasn't necessarily all happening mm-hmm. concurrently, but I was exposed to it. Yeah, all around the same time. All yeah. around the same time, and I just, I was trying to get my shit, I, I had had a brief but really intense stint with drugs and alcohol, and I was trying to get my shit together. Okay. So I gravitated toward the positive hardcore stuff the seven seconds the Dagnasty, um who whereas what they weren't overtly straight edge there was a positive right right uh message of personal responsibility and stuff and then obviously you know all of the connecticut specific hardcore like youth of today was coming out and wide awake and and that stuff just t- really really spoke to me mm-hmm. it had all the aggression and you know uh heavy guitar stuff that the heavy metal that I had loved. Uh, plus it had this positive message. And so it was just sort of a, a perfect storm right, for right. me and where I was at. It all connected. Yep. The, um, so you're, what kind of kid, I mean, when you were, when you were 12 and being exposed to, you know, a lot of that heavy metal stuff, like where was that coming from specifically like MTV or was that kind of coming oh, from no. just, it sort of been pre MTV. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, I really like, like, this is also something that we touched on during dinner. Um, it, you know, I, I, I guess the, the entry point for the heavy metal stuff was stuff like ACDC, hard rock. Okay. And uh, immediately because of, because I'm the kind of person that I am, that wasn't extreme enough. And so I would like, always looking for the next step. Sure. Yeah. What's heavier than this? What's more right. intense? What's more extreme than that? <laughs> totally. So I would go to the heavy metal record shops in, you know, my hometown or in new Haven and just look for the stuff that had the gnarliest covers or, you know, That's, read, read Kerrang and do the research. Right. Um, so I would discover stuff like venom and Hellhammer. Right. Really just the, gnarly super shitty um uh, yeah the more proto out, the black more, metal sure the more outrageous it's funny because just in kind of reflecting on those statements like 
I wonder if a band like, you know, a band like Cannibal Corpse, like mm-hmm. I so distinctly remember being attracted to them for no other reason besides everything of what you're talking about, where it's like you look at the record covers and you're just like, dude, butchered at birth, like entrails ripped from a virgin's <laughs> cunt. Like, are you fucking kidding me? But like, I wonder if like a band like Cannibal Corpse could be successful in like the internet age, you know, where it's like if a band like Cannibal Corpse could exist sure. now, like. You know, whereas Cannibal Corpse then was just like just light years ahead of all of their other, you know, bands that they were surrounded by. So I was just it's interesting to see this like the the gravitation that you are as a younger kid of just like, oh, yeah, I got to find something more extreme. And then like yeah. now that you can find the most extreme shit in 40 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> For, yeah. 40 seconds would be a really right. involved Google search. But yeah. Hell, uh, Hellhammer, like Eternal Raids or whatever that that first Hellhammer record was like. Yeah. We, me and my friends got that and we're like, this is the, I don't even understand this. This is just baffling. <laughs> totally. It must be great. Right. It has to be it's terrible. Right. Right. So it must be great. <laughs> and what, uh, what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were, you know, entering junior high and high school and stuff like that? Oh, I was you? a total nerd. Okay. I was like, um, I had skipped a grade, which I already alluded to. I was sure. like, did, was that just kind of because, because like school came easy to you? School came easy and that I was uh, a problem child. Like I wasn't being challenged. So I would just cut up and Ah. distract everybody else. Oh, sure. Like maybe if we challenged this kid more, he would not disrupt the class as much. I was about to say like class clownish in a way. Yeah. Except I wasn't necessarily funny. I was just (laughs) troublesome. So you're just annoying. I was annoying. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So I, um, I went to a sort of, um, Grammar school was like really sort of homogeneous, mostly white kids. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to middle school for seventh and eighth grade, it was way more mixed, black, Puerto Rican, Dominican, okay, white. I think that was that's probably the the ethnic mix that was happening there. And I was just getting my ass kicked every day. Really? Because I was a nerdy white kid. Sure. Um and so in the summer I guess in the in the time between middle school and high school, I got sent to a prep school for nine through twelve. I was like, "Oh, this is the perfect opportunity to remake myself." Oh, so as, I, as every kid, like right. when you enter a new school, you're just like, "Perfect! Yeah. This is the time where no one knows my the baggage of my right. past." So I was tired of getting my ass kicked, uh, <laughs> and so I sort of made myself over as kind of like a burnout guy, like a oh, rocker, okay, rocker guy, and um, of course that totally did not fit in with the prep school sure. situation. It, w- it wasn't like a sleep away, like boarding school or anything. It was just sort mm-hmm. of a, a day school right. in New Haven. But, um, uh, you know, unbeknownst to me, I set myself up as to be a total outsider for my entire time there. Right. There were some kids who were into punk rock and sort of post-punk, mm-hmm. I guess at that point, uh, only a couple of kids who were actually into heavy metal. So... I sort of put myself in the ghetto. Sure. Right. You're like, yeah, I'll, I'll be, I'll be over here. You yeah. guys, you guys will be over here. I'll be over here. Yeah. Go do your black flag and Bauhaus stuff. I don't, that doesn't make any sense to me <laughs> and it wouldn't make sense to me for another, you know, five or eight years. Right. The, uh, and so then as you, uh, as you started to, you know, matriculate and then the, uh, like you said that there was a, uh, you know, you got intensely involved with, you know, alcohol, drug abuse. Mm-hmm. Like how did that did that manifest itself just basically by the peer group you're hanging around with? Or was that something that you just, uh, you discovered on your own? <laughs> I, I mean, 
it wasn't really the peer group that inflicted it on me. I definitely sought it out mm. and um, to a great extent that determined who I hung out with. That's true. Yeah. Um, I was just really uncomfortable in my own skin. I, I, I was um, nervous, insecure, unsure of myself, mm-hmm. uh, full of anxiety all the time. And, you know, I've, you wanted to cope with it somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And sure. so I was uh, using it to self-medicate. Okay. And I, I'm going to guess that you were just doing this completely you know, like behind your parents' back and like they had sort of no idea or? They pretty quickly came to have an idea because of the consequences <laughs> were, were, you know, fa- coming fast and furious. Sure. Because- I mean, I got a DUI within a month of getting my driver's license. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, it was not cool. But I guess... The flip side of uh, going at it so hard, so fast, was that I was sort of done with it by the time I was 17. You got it through your system. <laughs> right. got, got in, went hard, got out. Right. You felt uh, before there was any, uh, I guess, I- I- irreparable damage. Yeah. Ex- right. yeah no, that's, that's, a fair, that's a fair way of putting it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I was not, you know, I you know, wasn't drinking and doing drugs into my forties and like ruining marriages and children's <laughs> lives and totally things. lives were shattered in the wake. It's like, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, my, the repercussions were relatively minimal because I got it over sure. so fast. Right. So yeah, the, the, the straight edge hardcore scene of, um, you know, the New York hardcore stuff, straight edge stuff came along at the perfect time. It was just like, I think I used the phrase perfect storm earlier. It was, yeah. Uh, it may have saved my life. I'll never know. I was going to say, I was like, I mean, the way, the way that you speak about it is, you know, in, in reverence where that there is a, uh, you know, you're, you're attaching the meaning behind what they were trying. That sort of music, you know, while in retrospect, people would look at it as be like, Oh, it's a little cheesy, a little tongue in cheek or whatever. But you know, at that time, like, that's what can not not only at that time, but like if that message hits you, it can pull you out. Yeah. Oh, the, I, 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 you know, there is a part of me that sincerely believes that those bands saved me. Yeah. I don't know. Like, and that stuff will all, for that reason, that stuff will always be incredibly important to me. And now you're absolutely right. It seems, it seems a little hokey. It's, mm-hmm. um, there's always there's a there's a thing about hardcore and especially straight edge that's inherently conservative, which makes me uncomfortable now. Mm-hmm. Looking back in the, you know the clear light of uh, twenty twenty hindsight, but yeah, at the time it was it was exactly what I needed, and it'll always have all you know be be imbued with meaning for me for that reason. Right, and it, it's it's one of those things too where it, especially when you feel like your voice or point of view is like heard and and echoed where it's just like oh yeah oh like someone else feels like the way the same way that I feel yeah and i feel like maybe there are people listening to this who have grown up with the internet who have always had that mm-hmm. because there's always going to be somebody like you can you can say whatever like oh i you know pick the craziest right. thought that you've ever had <laughs> right. if you if you fling that out into the internet someone is going to go oh yeah no i you know I agree that, um, I don't know. I can't think of anything. Yeah. The, right. Right. The, the, <laughs> sure. But like in a pre-internet age, um, you kind of had to look to media to have those 
things mm-hmm. reflected back at you. Sure. If there wasn't anybody in your immediate friend group or whatever. And, and also those bands, those shows, uh, places like the Anthrax and CBs and the Ritz and ABC No Rio, those, those spaces, um, fostered communities who reflected that stuff back at you too. Sure. So right. that was incredibly important. Right. Yeah. That, you showed a communion. Right. right. You showed up there and it, it was, it was, it was, you, you were a part of something. Yeah. Like even if you didn't recognize it at the time, like you, you, Hell yeah. the realization came down. Um, so what was your, I guess, what was your path in regards to like, you know, Oh, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life from a job. And like, you know, because you, I mean, you, like you said, you went to college and like, you know, what did, what did your, what did your parents do for a living? Uh, it's pretty weird. My mom was a paralegal up through the time that I was 12 or 13. Um, my dad was a freelance writer for most of my growing up. Okay. And what then, was it like working for newspapers or whoever? No, just, he oh. was like writing, well, writing fiction for the most part. Oh, okay. A lot of on spec stuff. So like maybe he would get paid and maybe he wouldn't. Right, right, right. Okay. <laughs> and he held various day jobs in that time. But like his big break was he wrote the screenplay for Friday the 13th oh. in 1980. That Yeah, that's a, that's a game changer. So it was a game changer, not in the sense that... Um, he got any kind of huge payday for Friday the 13th because he really didn't. Sure. Um, Probably all things considered, like (laughs) all things considered in retrospect would be like, oh, wow, that's a, you know, that's a, that's an iconic thing. That person who invented it probably was able to make kajillions of dollars. If I told you the figure, you would laugh. Sure. Um, $45. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But still, I don't know. He like wrote it like for a flat fee. Sure. And... But it was a game changer in the sense that it raised his profile. And for reasons that I couldn't possibly explain, he was able to parlay that into a job in daytime TV. He became a writer okay. on soap operas. Sure. So As you do once you write an iconic once, yeah, horror right. movie. <laughs> once you write it. Yeah. Uh, so when I was 12, Friday the 13th came out and that was a big deal. Did you did you go to like premieres and stuff like that? No. Okay. It was... That movie, I mean, I know, I, I guess, yeah. That, he's fucking terrifying. That's true. That's true. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not showing up man's Chinese theater. <laughs> no, I mean, it was, it was a low budget thing. It was a ripoff of Halloween. Right. That was what, uh, he, he and the director, Sean Cunningham, what they, what they would do. It's sort of, it's sort of a very early version of Asylum Productions. Okay. You know, the people who do, uh, Sharknado and all that. Right. <laughs> they figure out, um, like when Rise of Pompeii is coming out. Uh-huh. They make a knockoff of the movie. Sure. Name it something similar and get it up on Amazon so that it's out at about the same time that the real movie, the quote unquote and real movie is. people get confused, right. People get confused and they pay $3 and download it. Or whatever. Dude, that's, what, that's <laughs> their whole business model. <laughs> that's a, I, I worked at Blockbuster Video for my first job and I can't, I, like so many movies came out like that where it yep. was like, you know, similar title, like on the same wall where yes. it was just like, wow, that's funny. I didn't, I mean, it makes sense. It's a business model. <laughs> so, but what they would do is like, um, if bad news bears was the big thing of the moment and I'm really dating myself now, um, <laughs> Sean and my dad would write a bad news bears knockoff movie. Right. Called man. was that, was that when Manny's orphans? No, here come the tigers. Oh, okay. Here come the tigers was the bad news bears knockoff because I, I was in it. That's amazing. Yeah. So, <laughs> and then there was another one that they did that was like a soccer movie. Okay. 
And then Friday the 13th was explicitly a knockoff of Halloween. Sure. Because Halloween the previous year had become, you know, a huge breakout hit. Right. And then Friday the 13th became a hit in its own right. Right, right, right. That's that's funny. So, so that you, was the game, the game changer for him. He didn't make a whole lot of money, but he was able to get this job in soaps. Right. And, and so he, he, he wrote from Connecticut or like did at that point did... He would uh, commute into New York. Okay, got uh, it. Every day or most days. Got it. And so for the next... I don't know, 30 years. That's what he did. Right, right. Uh, he worked on just about every East Coast based soap opera that there was. And that's how he put me and my brother through college. And that's know, amazing. Bought yeah. himself a nice house and stuff. The uh, yeah. So there wasn't a uh, clear family path that you could see where it was like, oh, oh, for music. No, but like, I guess my parents were always sort of vaguely bohemian and they did art stuff. Like I, I, I grew up in a really blue collar town. There were two factories that most of the I'm doing air quotes now that most of the dads worked at because <laughs> oh, most sure. most of back then it was mostly the dad went to work and the mom stayed, stayed at home, home. The kids right yeah and so you either went to the Avco Lycoming tank engine factory and worked there mm-hmm. or you worked at the Ray Bestis brake shoe factory okay and so most of my friends like their dads did one of those two things but my dad was an anomaly in that he worked from home or you know went into Manhattan and right, wrote yeah, these yeah. soap operas, which was super weird. So I guess if there was a, a family path, it was this recognition that I didn't have to go punch a clock. Right. But yeah, you didn't have to do the thing that was, quote unquote, expected of your surroundings. Yes. That's cool. That yeah, was yeah. never an explicit uh, uh, message. Right. It was sort of implicit. All right. Real talk. Pardon this, pardon this interruption in this amazing interview with Ian Miller, but I have to tell you about Me Undies, and that's not just because they are a awesome sponsor of the show, but because I legit love their product. So there's one thing that you never think about. You're just like, oh yeah, underwear. You know, it's the first thing you put on, and it's the last thing you take off for the day. So why not have the most comfortable, softest, just durable underwear? on the market, and that is MeUndies. So they're designed in LA and made from sustainably sourced micro-modal, modal, fabric that's three times softer than cotton. MeUndies softer than soft luxury undies come in an ever-changing selection of classic colors, bold shades, and adventurous patterns so you can basically do what you want and express yourself however you'd like with their awesome underwear. So if you're, they, they have a subscription plan, and if you want an awesome pair of underwear each month, no problem. Do it up. But if you're like, you know, I want to try something. I, I just want to try a pair. Please use the promo code WORDS. So go to meundies.com slash words and you will get 20% off your first pair. And it's unbelievable because I, I, I have gotten their stuff. I use it. And not only is their underwear amazing, they have the most comfortable French Terry joggers where it's like I put them on and I'm like so I'm going to be wearing these for like uh, two months right like I'm just I'm going to wear them until they're absolutely filthy because they are that comfortable so please go to meandies.com slash words for 20% off your first pair and that's that's what you need to do I just want to make you feel comfortable right I'm trying to help you out okay so meandies.com slash words 20% off you will thank me later for it try it out you got nothing to lose okay so on with the show. And so then, um, you're, uh, did you have like, you know, once you started to go to shows and start to experience, you know, all of the different scenes and everything like that, mm-hmm. were you immediately taken by the fact that like, yo, I got to play in a band? 
Or is that just that like... That is a really good question. I started playing bass when I was 12. Okay. Why did you choose bass? Because it has two less strings? It like, was assigned to me. Oh. <laughs> uh, in, my, in my friend's group, it was like three or four kids in junior high. Mm-hmm. And like uh, Dave decided he was going to play bass. Okay. And, you know, the other guy said he was going to... No, Dave, no, Dave was playing guitar. Sorry. Okay. Uh, Steve was going to play guitar... The other guy was gonna play drums, and I just like sure, ended you were, up with bass. Right, you were <laughs> at that by that logic, you would either be you know the bassist or the singer because usually yeah. both both of those positions, especially in the context of like you know punk and hardcore and stuff, where like you, you have no idea like how to play instruments. Oh yeah, usually both of those positions are by people that like don't know how to do all the other things. Exactly, <laughs> the singer's just like, well, I guess I'll I'll yell into a microphone or whatever. Yeah. It was the lowest sort of barrier to entry <laughs> positions, right? That's true. That's true. Anybody can pluck a single bass string. Totally. And anybody can yell into a microphone. You know, right. I mean, they might not be able to do it well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, but you can figure it out. You can totally figure it out. And then shortly after I got assigned the bass thing, I discovered Iron Maiden. Oh, okay. And Steve Harris, uh, you know, one of my favorite bass players of all time. Still love the guy to this day. Still love the band to this day. Mm-hmm. Um he sort of uh, expanded my understanding of what a bass player could, sure. could be and do. So right. this, this, this is actually a valuable part of bands. It's not, it's not just to, you know, fill out the sound or whatever. Like this is yeah. an oh, yeah, integral yeah. No, part. You can, I mean, Steve was the engine or yeah. still is that drives that band. Yeah. It's his band. He calls the shots. He writes the songs. He does everything, right. uh, which is really unusual for a bassist to do. Sure, and it's almost unheard of for a bassist to do successfully. Right, like <laughs> you have to manage I mean, that. Over. You know, my Iron Maiden is not for everybody. That's pretty clear. But to be a uh, a band that revolves around the bass guitar while still being listenable, while not being terrible, <laughs> yeah. while not being self-indulgent. Sure. Uh, is really tough to pull off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's the, one of the best that there's ever yeah, been. Yeah, and he did it. And so then when you, uh, when you went away to college, mm-hmm. um, what were you studying? Would you? English literature, I guess. Okay. For, for lack of a better term. And I did, you know, I, I found my community in college radio. Okay. Uh, in college and that, you know, dramatically expanded my understanding of, of what music and especially underground music mm-hmm. could be and do. Right. And it, the, the, I was going to hit on this later, but then you, uh, your musical taste has always struck me as extremely diverse. You know, like there's no, um, I could tell there's no, you know, uh, what most people would define as guilty pleasures. Like that doesn't exist within. No, uh, God, yeah. I love it all. I mean, right. we've already talked about Betty who tonight. Exactly. I love that Amazon bitch. Right. <laughs> She's amazing. And so like, do, do you think that's, you know, due to, due to, you know, the music that you were being exposed to that's kind of across the spectrum or is that just something that you really, um, kind of, I guess, craved in your knowledge for music? I, I'm, I'm, I don't know how well I can answer that question. Yeah. I do feel like I have this insatiable curiosity about okay. music. Uh, does that sound pretentious at all? I don't mean no. It. I mean, well, uh, no. I mean, it, it does. I, I think people that are primed within independent music, 
um, you know, sometimes they, they end up sticking to their lanes and, mm-hmm. and partially, you know, partially just cause of youth, because it's like, you know, you're like, right. Oh, whatever. I'm, you know, 16 years old. Like I'm only going to listen to, you know, straight at hardcore or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it's only, you know, it's like maybe a band or two is able to kind of break you away from that. Um, but that I, I think the curiosity is something where it's like, cause even if you do stick to a lane, there are certain things that kind of, you know, percolate up or whether, whether it's an influence on a band that you, you know, predominantly listening to that kind of starts to, you know, broaden your scope. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that doesn't sound pretentious. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to feel it. Like, I just want to know everything there is to know about music. It's the, it's, uh, it's so important to me. It's the love of my life. Right. And I just, I want to know, I want to know everything there is to know about music and I want to fill in the blanks. Like how did, you know, I mean, you're, you're looking at my two bookshelf. Ray is looking, facing my two bookshelves of all my music books. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, desperately curious about music and I want to know everything there is to know, but I want to fill in the gaps. Like how did we get from the Velvet Underground to MC5 to Iggy and the Stooges? Mm Mm-hmm to the New York Dolls, to the Ramones, to Talking Heads and Blondie. Like, uh, yeah, show me the on through the, line. On, yeah, <laughs> but on the surface of it, like that makes no sense. Like, <laughs> the, where did the Velvet Underground come from? Like, right. They're one of those things that just seems to have sprung fully formed out of nowhere, but they're not. They have to come from somewhere. Sure. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, punk rock uh, from England in 76 and 77, like you the sex pistols just seem like this total anomaly that sprung out of nowhere. But then when you pick it all apart, you figure out, it was like, Oh, there's pub rock. There was Johnny Thunders and the heartbreakers mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. And you, in the dolls and you can, you know, figure out how it all fits together. And that's those sort of puzzles. Um, still are fascinating to me. Right. And I still want to fill in the gaps. It's fun to put all those pieces together. Yeah. Uh, and so then what, what was your technical first band? <laughs> <laughs> All right, the first band that where I got assigned playing bass in, or or maybe uh, first or, band that actually recorded. And or I was gonna anything? say like yeah, like maybe played it like played a show and like so you started to experience like that sort of uh, you know scene. Whether it was like oh like hey we're you know gonna play a show and yeah okay so when uh, when I went away to college it was in New Orleans okay and that's kind of where I first discovered hardcore. The first hardcore show I ever went to was in New Orleans and it was Corrosion Conformity and DRI. Okay. Both of whom were from the South. And so we, they would just come through four times a year. Cause it, it's, we, when you say New Orleans, like that doesn't still, I mean, it, that's like one of the most notoriously difficult places to play. Oh and, yeah. And it's just weird that you would have a experience. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, like, yes, there are metal shows that go through there and that clearly yeah. it has a, it's a rich musical town. But when you're talking about aggressive music, it's, it's difficult to get people to care. For sure. There were, you know, there were a couple of bands, like the big local bands were Graveyard Rodeo that had Pepper Keenan in that right, band. Right, Went on to be in uh, Down and whatever else season. Yes. Uh, and Corrosion, of course. Right. Um, and then Shellshock, who were like the hometown heroes. But yeah, so uh, DRI and Corrosion would come through a bunch. Okay. Especially Corrosion. They were there a, a shitload. Sure. Um. But wait, your question was, oh, my first band. Yeah. yeah. Um, I started a New York hardcore band, kind of, <laughs> in New Orleans. Like, Sure. Drafted a couple of people that I went to college with and found a singer. The first singer was actually from Long Island. And all I wanted to do was, you know, moshcore. 
Sure. It didn't end up sounding like that at all because of the other influences that, that came in. But that band was called Red Army. Okay. And we were sort of trying to do positive hardcore thing, mm-hmm. anti-racist, uh, you know, overt anti-racist message because there were all these racist skinheads sure. who were hanging out or, uh, in, in New Orleans and its environs. And we got a lot of shit for it. Uh, we did one seven inch that I put out. So that was the first band I feel like that I was ever in. Oh, nice. And you put out, you, you put out the seven inch. Yeah. So you, you, it sounds like you had a, a mind for, um, being, I guess, driven in a way where it's like, you were like, okay, like, we'll, like, we'll pick this up. Like I'll take the responsibility of, you know, actually putting out a seven inch. Like that's cause that's not a logical step for most people. No, but I guess, uh, I'd seen it happen any number of times, uh, you know, back home in Connecticut, that's just like what you did. Sure. Um, yeah, revelation was starting up and Mm -hmm. schism was starting up and that's just what you did. You just put out, you know, right. You book shows and you put out a record and you send it to maximum rock and roll on flip side and hopefully got a good review. (laughs) Totally. And then, then people will send you $4 in the mail and then you can send it back to you. I think it was $3 back then, but sure. Maybe three fifty post paid. Exactly. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So 50 cents a tip. Exactly. (laughs) So yeah. Uh, red army misspent youth EP is still out there on discogs. It's, uh, probably the same price, probably still three fifty. There's no, no premium on that record. It hasn't, uh, it hasn't, uh, inflated up to eBay gold. No, no, no. no. (laughs) And so then, so as you started to, I presume that experience was just the, like, as you started to get out there and play shows and stuff like that, you were like, oh, this is like, this is it. Like, this is really a great experience. Or this was just kind of like, oh, this is something I always just do on the side, so to speak. It, I mean, it was, uh, in a lot of ways, it was the only thing I cared about. Sure. So I graduated college and Tracy and I got married and we moved to Oakland because that's where things were happening. Okay. And there was Gilman Street in Berkeley. How old were you when you got married? 21. That's really young. That's pretty young. It's very young. I I mean, I knew Tracy was the love of my life and I knew I needed to lock that shit down. So I did. (laughs) You're like, what's, uh, what's, what's going to stop me? No, nothing, nothing. No, I need to get, I need to get this shit done. Sure. Obviously. Got it. So we moved out here and, you know, Gilman was happening. Op Ivy were the most important band in the world to me at mm-hmm. that point. Um, so I wanted to be a part of that scene. And so it really was a drug, like you, you recognized that stuff was happening up here. So it was like, we got to move out here. We no longer wanted to live in the South. Sure. D- David Duke had just been, you know, the former Klansman, or maybe he was still a Klansman, <laughs> mm-hmm. had just been elected to the state legislature. Sure. You're like, we need to get the fuck out of here. We need to get the fuck out of here. And as much as I love New Orleans, uh, as soon as you get, you know, two miles outside, you know, it's like a little oasis, like any city, uh, you know, as soon as you got out of the immediate vicinity of New Orleans, you're in the deep South and it's really backwards in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I was just done with that, man. I wanted to move somewhere progressive. I wanted to move somewhere where it wasn't you know, it was, it was easier to book a show that people would actually show up for and mm-hmm. the Bay area was popping. So sure. That was we it. Ended up. Pardon the interruption one more time, but support for this podcast comes from Toyota and their new 2017 Highlander. If you're like me, when the weekend comes, you don't want to just sit around the house. You want to get out with the family, explore new places and try new things. Maybe check out a science museum, hit up a music festival, or just head out into nature. 
the new Toyota Highlander is the perfect vehicle for discovery. It starts on the outside with its sleek design and aggressive new front grille that say you have an attitude for adventure. I mean, attitude for adventure, that's 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 pretty good copy. <laughs> its improved powertrain makes it more fun to drive and more fuel efficient than ever. It has Toyota Safety Sense technology standard. And one of my favorite features is driver easy speak, which lets you broadcast what you say to the rear seats so your passengers can hear you. It doesn't mean that anyone's going to listen to you, but at least they can hear you. So navigate to your nearest Toyota dealer or toyota.com and see why there's always more to discover in the new 2017 Highlander. I love this part. Drivers are responsible for their own safety driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. See owner's manual for additional limitations and details. (laughs) The long and the short of it is that the Toyota Highlander is an incredible vehicle. I got to test drive one of them. And uh, frankly, if I already didn't own the car that I do, this would be my number one with a bullet choice. So once that comes around to buying a new car, please check it out. You will love it. Amazing technology. Backed hard. There you go. Toyota Highlander. Highlander. Do it up. And so then did you, uh, did you like, because, I mean, this is, this is something I was going to ask a little bit later, but I can tie it into this where, um, you know, all the bands that you've ever played in, you know, from, you know, all the bands you've ever played in, how there's never been uh, a band that it, from my outside perception that you've like made a living at, you know, it's always been right. (laughs) Well, or, or, I mean, like, was there a time where that was, that was happening for you? So in the mid nineties, I was in Skank and Pickle for right. I was in Skank and Pickle for exactly two years. And that was sort of a calculated professional thing. Like I didn't Okay. I liked the music. I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. I saw it as an opportunity to play big shows and maybe make a little bit of money. Sure. And we were on tour for about six months out of the year. Right. And so yeah, so I mean, I get, yeah, because it's been, that was like 94, 95. That sounds about right. Sure. Yeah, I mean. I right. never didn't have a day job. Right. But I was making enough to live on when I wasn't working the day job. Sure, yeah. So I'm, your your original supposition is is still essentially correct. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> Just because the, the since that was never uh, a vision of yours, I'm presuming that it was never like, Hey, I, I need to like quit everything else, and I no. want to like play music for a living. There was no. Nah, that's I mean that's <laughs> that's the death knell, right? I mean, yeah. If I was going to do that, I would have moved to L.A. instead of moving here. Yeah, and I don't know. I that was that was certainly never the goal. Okay. It, would it have been nice? Sure. Sure. I would have loved to not have to. Uh, hustle and work a day job mm-hmm. if one of these bands had blown up for whatever reason. That would right. have been great, but it just was never in the cards. And frankly, I mean, I, I do think that that's like the quickest way to destroy your love of music is to, that's I mean, yeah. I, I have played in cover bands like yeah. as a way to sort of make ends meet and stuff. And that's just, uh, it's just soul crushing. It's really <laughs> a fucking drag, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, a it lot becomes, of, it's a lot of work. Yeah. It becomes your job, makes you hate music. And uh, I think if you had to, if you, if you rough it out and figure out your hourly wage, if you're figuring out, if you, if you factor in all the (laughs) practicing and slogging to and from the gig, like you might as well just work 
at fucking McDonald's or something. Like it, totally, you're making you're making three dollars and ten cents an hour if exactly. you're like breaking it down like that. No, it's just it's depressing. I don't even like to think about it. Yeah, <laughs> and so then when you when you arrived in Oakland, you um, you I guess you immediately started. You know, becoming I was in immersed. a band within a week. Okay, that was that. Was that. <laughs> I week. had uh, I had traded e- uh, n- not emails. What am I saying? Yeah, I had traded uh, snail mail, actual letters with Devin Morph, who um, is currently in Conquest for Death. Okay, uh, was working at Maximum Rock and Roll and had his own fanzine called Wajlamac back then, mm-hmm. and we just became friends. Um, I don't even know how, but you know through the mail, and so I moved out here. The second day we were here, I feel like they had the opening party for Epicenter. Oh, okay. And I met Devin in the flesh there, and he's like, "Oh, hey, do you, you know, we need a bass player for my band, All You Can Eat. Do you want to play bass?" And I'm like, oh, "Of course." Yeah, yeah, I got and a so, bass. Part yeah. Works out perfectly. So I was playing in All You Can Eat within a week, and did that for a year or maybe two, and then I started with some guys that I met through. It's probably through BAM magazine. Do you even okay. remember? Do you remember BAM? BAM, no, no. It's Bay Area Music Magazine. Okay. Um, was it kind of like a like an alt weekly in a way, or was it more just like specifically like specifically music? for music? And then okay. in the back they had all like the wanted ads, the things that would now be Craigslist sure, musicians sure. wanted ads. Okay. And so I think you got to place ads for free. Okay. And you would just say, you know, looking for like minded people to play this, that, or the other. Right. And we started this like weirdo ska punk band called hoodlum empire okay and for a while we had a dj like it was just like every <laughs> you had a dj yeah it was like what? every genre <laughs> like, thrown in. like you're like yeah of course we had a dj <laughs> of course it was 1991 or whatever it was or right right and so like we would play we would play like these all-day shows at the omni and so the bills would be like from from top to bottom it'd be like fungo mungo or limbo maniacs or something like that okay mordred um, nuclear Rabbit, Hoodlum Empire would be in there somewhere close to the opening. Deftones, when they were sort of like a funk metal band. Okay. Who else would have been playing back then? I mean, those are that was sort of the the scene that the, was happening. The general, yeah, yeah, it was like this weird Bay Area. I mean, funk metal doesn't really adequately describe it, but like that's I feel like looking back, the, that's the, the, like the beginnings of that that. I mean, I don't know if I yeah. call it a scene, but like <laughs> it was definitely a scene here okay. for a couple years. It was like, yeah, Primus and Sausage and Curveball and okay. like all those, you know, strange offshoots. But yeah, that's that's kind of where we fell in. And and were and, you were you like the were you like the 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 straight edge hardcore kid? I mean, well, did you actually call yourself straight edge? Like, or is that something that you you? I probably did. Like, I okay. mean, I was no longer xing up. Yeah, but I mean, like, do you, like, is it one of those things? Like, you you kind of dressed like you dressed the part of a like hardcore kid, like in these bands, or was it just kind of like you just wore you know clothes? I just I'm just picturing this thing where it's just like here's you that has in a taste of you know like aggressive-ish music, mm-hmm. and then you're playing in this you know weird band with DJ, like it's right. just you know. <laughs> I mean, we're, you know, everybody back then were like Dickies and Carhartts. And That's stuff true. Like that. it, was, like, it was more uniform across the board. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. But I was, you know, I was still listening to Into Another or whatever at the same time. Right. <laughs> Is that a little bit later? Into Another might have been. Uh, a little bit. But yeah, your point, your point. Might have still been listening to Underdog at that point. <laughs> 
And so then, uh, you know, kind of, uh, run me through, just because you've played in so many bands right. from this area. Like, yeah, Redemption 87, like, yeah, run me through okay. the, the... So, uh, there's All You Can Eat first, okay. the Hoodlum Empire, okay. and then Hoodlum Empire immediately led to Skank and Pickle, okay. <clears throat> because it was the sort of ska punk thing. And did you play bass in Skank and Pickle? Played bass in Skank and Pickle. Have, I you, was, play, uh, have you played anything but bass in... Nope. You are, I mean, you are just a, I'm a one trick pony. I'm never, you know, <laughs> a lot of dudes like moved from guitar to bass. Right. Because, oh, we need a bass player. Well, I play guitar. I can, I can obviously play bass because it's sure, way it's easier. A dumb, dumb instrument, right? <laughs> Any idiot can play bass. Um, no, but I, yeah, like, because I got assigned bass when I was 12, that's the only thing I've sure. really ever Stick played. Stick to your lane, Ian. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so that led to this Skank and Pickle gig. And I played in that band for two years. And then concurrently with that, I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. This is bumming me out. Mm-hmm. What I really want to do is play old school hardcore. Sure. So that's when I met Eric Ozine through uh, Lars Fredrickson. Okay. Lars introduced the two of us. He's like, well, Eric was in Unit Pride, and you want to start an old school hardcore band. You guys need to talk. And then we got Tim Chunks on the phone, mm-hmm. who was living in L.A. or Long Beach at that point. Okay. And like... This is the dumbest idea ever, but do you want to commute up from Southern California <laughs> you want to, to, practice, play in our, right. to practice and play in our shitty, you know, old school hardcore band? Right. Um, and strangely enough, he did. Right. And then Eric knew this guy, Gary, who was a little bit older than us, was a solid drummer, and we drafted Gary to play drums. And that was the original lineup of... Redemption, mm-hmm. and then we got Scott Hay to play guitar, and then Scotty went away, and then Tim kind of was like, "I don't want to drive six and a half hours to play sure. a dumb show with you guys." Yeah, we're all like, "I'll only come up for like shows that are important or whatever." <laughs> so then we got Jade, um, who was friends with the AFI guys, but wasn't in AFI yet. Okay, and I never knew Jade played in Redemption. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Jade played on the second LP. Okay. And I think pretty much is immediately when Redemption, you know, folded. Like, I think he joined AFI right around that time. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. He was an official member, played in the reunion shows. Wow. That's reu- cool. Reunioned. Right. Reunion shows. Um, okay. So that's up through Redemption 87. That's like mid 90s. Uh huh. I think at. Right around, like after Redemption wrapped up, that was just such an emotional roller coaster. I was like, I don't really want to do that. I need to focus on like, you know, being an adult and like getting a career and shit. Right. So I did that for a minute. I like sold all my bass gear. I was like, I'm done with that. And then I went completely mental. Like I, you know, I can't, I can't not do that. Sure. Oh, uh, I think like the next thing that happened was this weird band called The Scheme. Okay. Is that? ring any bells at all was that with simon brody from yeah drowning man <laughs> it was holy shit i didn't it, know you played in that yeah so that initially <laughs> initially that was pete martin from lifetime who had moved out here yeah yeah yeah. and jets to brazil right he was in like the original jets before they did orange rhyme dictionary sure and uh todd tomlinson from drowning man drummer was also out here okay i got linked up with those dudes and we were writing, demoing some incredible stuff, like really cool. Uh, Pete would write most of it. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm safe in saying that it was incredible because I had very <laughs> little to do with it. I just showed up and played bass. Uh, but Todd was an incredible drummer and Pete was like writing these super amazing, intricate, uh, post-hardcore things. 
but we couldn't ever find like the right singer. Right. We had this insane Brazilian guy singing for us for a minute and we did some demos with Jack and Dino in Seattle. I was, I was going to say, cause I remember, at, yeah. I remember around that time was it cause you, you guys eventually put out one EP through or did an EP come out? Well, there were like demos that, that's okay. I just remember that got was, released. Right. Yeah. So I remember it was like, there was talk of the fact that it was like, Hey, this, this band, like this band could be something like exciting from like an industry perspective. Dude, like, Oh, it was like, sick. That's the, that band was incredible. And to this day, I'm like, you know, I look at it as this amazing thing that could have been, but never been. was. So we had the crazy Brazilian guy and we did uh-huh. these demos and those just came out terrible. Yeah. And then somehow we got Simon and then Denny Donovan who had also played in drowning man. So it was like three fifths of drowning man plus me and Pete. Okay. And we were uh, demoing stuff that Denny was recording in our practice space. And we actually did a showcase at South by for arena rock. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And everyone just got, uh, well, some of the dudes in the band just got shit hammered and could barely play. Oh wow. We, I I wouldn't expect that from a person like Simon Brody. (laughs) Holy Holy, he's yeah. It and you know we basically like shot ourselves in the foot. Like this is our this is our big shot. Right here we go. And then uh, shot yourself right in the foot. Right. Yeah. 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 To this, I mean, well, it's, I mean, it sounds like the way that you're talking about it. That's definitely like the 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 one, uh, you know, whatever uh, keyhole opening where you're just like, hey, this like that that could kind of be something. Like the, I'm telling you, dude, the, right. the stuff that that we were writing originally as a three piece was so good. Yeah, yeah. And you know, yeah, yeah. It, it never self destructive, right? Yeah, totally <laughs> self destructive. So uh, yeah, the original thing was called. I can't remember what we were calling ourselves, but then once Simon and them got involved, it was the scheme. Yeah, and you so can find those demos floating yep, around yeah. somewhere. Like, I, I want to, for was, didn't death wish put it. I don't know. It's one of those things where it's like, I just, I remember it coming into the record store and whatever. Anyways, but that wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to say categorically whether or not. Yeah. No, released no or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so then that soured me on stuff for a while too. And I think sure. it must've been right around, gosh, I've, the the years are all a blur. Yeah, yeah. But I might have um I might have joined Kowloon right around that time. Kowloon's been going like ten years now, so that would have been Oh yeah, so that would have been yeah, o- whatever seven mid two thousand now. We'll say, yeah, yeah. yeah. Two thousand seven, yeah. I'm trying to think if there was anything else in there. I would do like little solo <laughs> things mm-hmm. in between. Like sure. there are a number of half assed bands that right. no, nobody's ever heard of. <laughs> yeah, of course. I can name haven't, that's, haven't got out of the garage. Right, right, right. And then Less Art started up about a year ago. Sure. Um Kowloon is still a going thing. We're writing a new record now. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the new stuff is really strong. I'm super stoked on it. We That's hope awesome. to have a record out this calendar year, but who knows? Maybe not. Sure. Um, and then the Less Art record is going to come out this spring or summer. It's finished ish. Yeah, yeah. We tracked it. Uh, we're in mastering right now, and the mastering is proving to be not problematic, but like we're, we're, you're pouring over it. I've heard we're dicking with it a bunch <laughs> and which is cool. I'm totally into it. I want it to be as good as it can possibly be. Yeah. But at the same time, I fucking want it done. Yeah. I want to be able to say this thing is done and put it, right. you want to put the button on it. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it, it, just because, I mean, like, you know, the, the wide uh, variety of bands that you've played with and because all of the, I, I do think it's, it's kind of indicative, like your sort of musical, journey is kind of indicative of this scene up here just because it is so, um, 
there's so many music styles that people are comfortable with, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's like, it, like you mentioned, you know, what up Ivy rancid, all these things, like, even though they don't, well, I mean, whatever to the outsider's perspective, they don't sound alike, even though you mm-hmm. can easily see the through line from mm-hmm. those sort of bands and you know, the, the, the community that was built around Gilman and everything like that. Um, do you, do you think that this scene, I guess, was more open-minded for having people such as yourself kind of bounce around to all these sort of different styles and be kind of like, oh, yeah, like, that's not, that's not weird that you would go from Skank and Pickle to Redemption 87, you know? <laughs> I still think that's weird. Yeah, for, it is for weird. What it, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like these days kind of nothing is off limits. Like, yeah. When I was growing up, and I don't know, you're you're younger than me, not by a ton, but by enough that this might make a difference. Uh-huh. When I was growing up, you like you listen to heavy metal, or you listen to hardcore, or you listen to rap, and like you know, there was very like, I listened to heavy metal and rap, but right. like, there was very little crossover. Like you literally you stayed in your lane, and yep. you know you were a fucking sellout if you did anything else. <laughs> That's true. And maybe yeah. like when you were with your girlfriend, you could listen to Journey because I, <laughs> that, I don't know, yeah, whatever. that was allowable, right? Bon Jovi, right, right. whatever it was, but you like didn't tell your homeboys about that, like yeah, that, yeah. you know. I feel like now everybody listens to everything. Like, sure. We were talking about this earlier. You know, you'll come across these 20 year old kids who, um, who will listen to Fela and they'll listen to, uh, discordance axis and like, like everything in between. Like, and there's, there are no, there are no borders. There are no genres. Like everything is just, if it's good, it's good. Sure. Irrespective of, you know, what, what the, uh, genre tag is. Right. And I feel like that's just where we are now. Like I listen to anything. I don't give a fuck. Right. If it's good, if it's interesting and whatever, for whatever reason, if it's intriguing to me, I'll listen to it. And so I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I yeah. liked, I like to think that with Kowloon and with less art, the two projects that I'm involved with currently that we're doing stuff that's novel that hasn't been done before. Like there, I'm obviously there, you know, it's the ingredients are the same. It's guitars, bass, drums, and vocals, but mm-hmm. hopefully we're approaching it in, in a, in a way that's new. Hopefully we're not just rehashing the shit that's been done before. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're trying to approach it with your own original view. Like you said, using the same ingredients that you're used to. Sure. Um, two last things I want to hit on was the, uh, you know, the fact that you're extremely passionate about sports to the Mm -hmm. same degree that you are about music as well. The, and you know, you, you, you wrote, uh, you were a writer in and around baseball for a while as well, Mm -hmm. from what I understand. Um, those two things like being into sports and being into independent music were kind of incongruous with one another. Like they didn't make sense. How did you navigate that as you were kind of like balancing (laughs) Like, no, that's a really good question because for a while there, that's another thing where you stayed in your lane. Like if yeah. you were into hardcore, you were not into sports. Sure. You, you could dress like you were into sports. Absolutely. But you, you, it was required that you dress like you, that you wore a, uh, you know, a sick of it all basketball jersey. Of course. Right. Um, but yeah. you could not actually play basketball or <laughs> totally. pretend that you liked basketball yeah. or let anybody know. Um, I don't know what happened. I feel like either there was a shift mm-hmm. in that and maybe the internet helped. Like maybe 
the internet was a way that you found out that other people who were into heavy music liked sports. Right. So either there was a shift or I just quit caring about it. Sure. At some point, like I'm a grown up. I can do whatever I want. I can like, I (laughs) can like, no one's going to judge me because I, yeah, yeah. yeah. I can like baseball and hardcore. Right. Um, So I don't know. Or maybe it was some of each, maybe it was a combination of those factors. Right. But I just quit. Like, I don't know. I just decided, you know, I got away from, I grew up really passionate about sports, played sports all through high school. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered drugs and music and girls and, didn't care about sports anymore. Sure. And right. Sort of as an adult <laughs> came back to it and re- really fell back in love with baseball pr- in particular. Yeah. Uh, and I was just, you know, this is, you know, much the way that I decided I don't care. You know, I'm not gonna have any guilty pleasures when it comes to music. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna have any guilty pleasures when it comes to sports. So sure. I just got super hardcore into baseball. And then again, my friendship with Riley, um, birthed this stupid Twitter account that we do productive outs. And then the, the podcast came on the heels of that. And I ended up getting a job with baseball prospectus, mm-hmm. uh, and did that for a while and wrote for, you know, several of the BP annuals. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I'm no longer writing about baseball professionally, which is great because I get to enjoy it again. Sure. doesn't become a job, right? Yeah. It's not a job, <laughs> which uh, is wonderful. Just having, man, just knowing I had to write a column every week, just destroy yeah, just so much sure. pressure. I'm not good at uh, managing that self-imposed, you know, deadline pressure. Sure, in that sure. Regard. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And then you know, me and Riley and Mike and then John from Kowloon did Puig Destroyer, which was yeah. People responded, you know, way better than anybody could have done. <laughs> like, of course, it's right. insane. <laughs> it's insane that we did that thing that we did two EPs in a full length all songs about baseball. It's the dumbest idea ever. Absolutely. It started as a joke on the podcast. The dumbest, brilliant, the dumbest, most brilliant idea at the same time. Absolutely. <laughs> Super fun. Never could have predicted that it would have happened. And it was great. Right. The, uh, last thing I want to hit on was, I mean, it's kind of echoes a lot of the conversations we were having was the, um, you know, the idea that, well, I, I've cited this on more than one occasion on the podcast, but I just find it so interesting where it's like, you know, I think Spotify did a study it was either last year or the year before where it's like, uh, you know, statistically speaking, 33 years old is where most people tap out of new music yeah. where it's like, <clears throat> whatever, they're examining their listener data mm-hmm. and, you know, profile information and stuff. Um, but then, you know, people, you know, like you and I, where it's just like, we just, you know, we have to not only not like stay super on top of it where we feel like, oh yeah, I'm like a, you know, a 14 year old getting into music for the first time, right. but just like stay engaged with it. Um, cause that's not normal. <laughs> like, I it's mean, not. and what, what kind of keeps you, um, I guess that curiosity, like unsatiated, you know, how does that, uh, kind of still manifest itself? Cause you know, at this point, like, you know. You've, you've already, like, there's already enough music out there. There's more than enough. I could, I could continue (laughs) to go backwards from, right. uh, Pick, pick a, pick a date. Right. January, you know, uh, December 31st, 1999. I could go backwards for the rest of my life. Just finding music that, you know, is pre year 2000. Totally. And be totally happy and satisfied with stuff. Right. But why do that? I mean, uh, if, if I did that, then I wouldn't have heard, uh, the new Vince Staples record or, sure. you know, Danny Brown, atrocity exhibit that came out last year, which is totally mind blowing. Um, 
a new Viagra Boys EP came out today that's a three-song record that's fantastic. Um, new All Them Witches record that I just discovered today and spun for the first time. It's just... I, why not? I mean, <laughs> I have a desk job that allows me to like sit and listen to podcasts and music for eight hours a day. Yep. I, I don't always want to listen to, you know, Prince's greatest hits or I don't know, uh, number of the beast. So sure. Why not go through the discover tab and try and find something new? It's, it's cool, man. There's yeah. so much amazing music out there. And, uh, why wouldn't why wouldn't you take advantage of that? When right. Spotify is serving it up straight into your brain. Sure, you're like, hey, I think you'll enjoy this. Hey, you know what? You're right. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do enjoy this. You might be wrong a third of the time, but that means sure. you're right two thirds of the time. Right, so. right. It's a good percentage. You uh, damn good. The uh, kind of remotely tied to that was the uh, the idea that you know you've you've always been very politically inclined, like, and mm-hmm. you're not uh, afraid to share your opinions, you know, across the board. Maybe uh, to a fault. Sure. Yeah. Some could say that. Um, but the, uh, you know, that, that's been a pretty consistent through line, you know, regardless of like the bands you've played in or whatever, you know, you've, that's always been kind of a, you know, a pillar of who you are. Um, how does that, uh, I guess how, how is that, uh, it's maybe not stayed consistent because I'm sure you've changed your opinions over time on, on some aspects of things, but Mm -hmm. you know, generally speaking, you've been, um, you know, politically inclined and aware. And then how, you know, how does that bleed itself into like, or I didn't say this, but the, the music that, uh, you know, you're, you're creating, like, do you try to keep those worlds separate in regards to the fact that, you know, a a lot of the band, I mean, especially the projects that you are like currently in, Mm -hmm. you know, don't have like these, aggressive political overtones no. and stuff. It's not like you're crass or else rotten or anything like that. <laughs> but you, you know what I'm saying? Where it's just like, you know, maybe just because you're like, you're not writing the lyrics per se for mm-hmm. the stuff. So I don't know how that kind of, it's a good question. Um, I am very lucky that both of the bands that I'm in right now, uh, the majority, if not the, the plurality, the, the total, everybody in both bands, um, shares a similar philosophy, similar political mm-hmm. point of view. And that's, I can't tell you how important that is to be surrounded by people who, you know, support you or, you know, mm-hmm. it's not that you want an echo chamber, but it's like people who understand where you're coming from. Right. That is critical. Um, and so I think even if we're not overt in the lyrics, like I think uh, I don't write any, uh, I've written like two lines of lyrics for Cal and Wild City. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that band is um, pretty, over, well, not maybe not overtly political. Mm-hmm. It might be sort of uh, subliminally political. Like the, There's you know, overtones. Yeah, we sure. have songs like Wrong, Wrong Side of History and Container Ships that are, uh, maybe you've got to know Scott who writes the vast majority of the lyrics to know that those are political, but they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's progressive. There's a, a very specific worldview. Um, and I think when the Less Art record comes out, Mike's lyrics are pretty overtly political. There's a couple of songs that are fucking intense. Sure. Um, one specifically that I'm thinking of called Diana the Huntress. Um uh, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, because I'm older, you know, maybe if I were 20, I would require that the lyrics be overtly political and they right. would be real strident about that and preachy. Cause I think that's what you do when you're 20. Of course. But <laughs> I'm way older than that. Um, and I am, um, very politically outspoken and politically active, but that doesn't necessarily need to be represented in the band's lyrics. Sure. I, I mean, I'm, I'm an activist, but I don't need to bash you over the head with that. Yeah. With the music. Yeah. I mean, and then, well, it makes sense, especially if you are, there's a difference between, you know, exemplifying it in one area of your life, but then it doesn't bleed over into like your actual life. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're expressing yourself, you know, artistically one way, yeah. but then you're not, you're just living your life, not in complete opposition to it, but like, no. you're just not doing anything on the other side it's probably not that beneficial, you know, if you're yeah. getting up there and being, you know, politically active, but then you're stepping off stage and not being, politically <laughs> yeah, right. you're like, I'm doing a lot, but then you're not really doing anything at the same yeah. time. So yeah, that, that makes sense for where you come yeah. from. Well, um, this has been spectacular. I feel like I'm, I'm in the position that I'm sitting right now. I'm like trying to seduce I, you or something. I wish you could see Ray right now. <laughs> I'm just laying, just sprawled on your couch. Paint me like one of your French girls. <laughs> well, this has been highly enjoyable for me and I'm glad that we got to do this in person. As oh, opposed my to pleasure, Sky. man. Thank you so much for having me. I'm of a course. huge fan and, uh, appreciate you, uh, asking thoughtful questions. Oh, I try. I try. <laughs> oh yes. Ian Miller, right? Just just right. That's all I got to say. He's just a right human being and a correct human being and uh, a friend. So thank you very much, Ian, for not only allowing me to stay at your house, but uh, wanting to talk to me for a very prolonged period of time as I laid. We, I think we made a joke in the show where I was just like laying on his couch like uh, like Rose in Titanic because uh, I was just splayed out. and uh, It was just a funny image like as I was just listening to him tell his story. So <laughs> anyways... The, um, yeah, what do I got to tell you? Oh, I got to tell you the guest next week, right? Uh, the guest next week is Chris Enriquez. He is the drummer for On the Might of Princes, and he also plays in a band called Primitive Weapons. Uh, I was looking forward to this chat very much, and he delivered in spades because he revealed information that I was like, <clears throat> I realized that a goal of mine in this podcast is to confirm <laughs> rumors or things that I've heard in passing <laughs> Uh, you know, in the, whatever the 15 plus years I've been involved in independent music. Cause there are times where I'm like, Oh man, I remember that band was talking to this record label. Like, was that a real story? <clears throat> and Chris gets to the bottom of it. He talks about how drive through records almost signed on the might of princes and then some weird stuff happened. And Oh yeah, it was a great story. So that is on next week. And then <clears throat> I might as well announce this as well. In April, um, I have happened to line up for incredible interviews with uh, very, very awesome, awesome females that are involved in the music scene. People in bands, people doing management companies. Um, There's just a lot of awesome females that are involved in the music industry. And, uh, you know, frankly, sometimes they get short shrift in regards to, you know, they don't have as much quote-unquote representation in the independent music scene. And I know so many things have been changing over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years in regards to that. And, uh, sometimes my show isn't exactly reflective over that experience. And, you know, frankly, it bums me out sometimes because I'm just like, well, I don't, I don't want to just be dudes talking to dudes forever because that's, uh, frankly, like I said, not representative of the music scene that we live in now. So 
it just happened to be that I was syncing up all these interviews with people um, of the female persuasion, and I was like, you know what, I'm going to make a month out of it, because uh, that is how strongly I personally believe in it, and people need to focus on this. So I'm not going to tell you the guests so far, but uh, suffice to say, these guests are awesome, and they have amazing stories and experiences within independent music. So boom, that is April, the month of women. <laughs> Maybe I should have timed that more appropriately to, you know, something else. But, um, yeah. And then also, I mean, the world at large, um, yeah, w- women uh, may feel a little underrepresented in, uh, the political climate as of these days. And, um, yeah, I want to show my own personal solidarity for the fact that, uh, women are incredible. That's it. Uh, they are by far the superior species, <laughs> um, in my opinion. And, uh, yeah, I just want to highlight them. So anyways, there's another, uh, another caveat in regards to why I feel so strongly, uh, about this on every aspect. So that is that I must go downstairs and have some breakfast before I drive three and a half hours back to New York city. So, um, there we go. That's what's happening with me, <laughs> but until next week, please, please, please be safe. Everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw podcast network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.